Topher Field, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Well, thank you so much, Robert. This is uh, this is a bit of a thrill. And can I just say, from the bottom of my heart, it means a lot to me that you built a brand new studio, especially for me. <laughs> just for you, my friend. <laughs> you are, in fact, and indeed, the guinea pig for our first recording in the new studio here in Miami. Yep. And it is an honor to have you. We originally met at the ARC conference in London. The launch, yeah. Yeah, the, the inaugural ARC conference. I forgot who introduced us. Goodness, I think I think I reached out to you. So I was there, obviously, as the host of the Aussie Wire News, mm-hmm. and I was there to interview. And uh, we had a team, the Aussie Wire sent a team of four journalists from Australia to be there. And we were set up in a corner. The ARC organisers were great. We had a great location. Mm-hmm. We had banners and all sorts of stuff. And, um, and we were just basically grabbing people against their will. Mm-hmm. Sort of, it was a bit like a CIA black site. We were just black bagging yeah, people, yeah. dragging them into the corner <laughs> and saying, right, now talk. <laughs> Not quite. Yeah. But I did over 50 interviews in three days and my brain was mush. Wow. I'm watching the interviews back now because we're still releasing them just drip, drip feeding them some of them i don't even remember yeah I'm, I'm hearing them for the first time even though i'm the one I'm, i was the interviewer yeah you were knocking them down they were like 10 minute interviews thereabouts right? yeah. yeah yeah someone i had dinner with someone i forgot the gentleman's name but he told me i had to meet you had to do an interview with you yeah, so right. i think i got pre-black bagged actually before i got black bagged. <laughs> it was fantastic as you mentioned you are the host of the aussie wire news mm. and you're a rather infamous or famous libertarian yeah uh, especially in a certain region of the world. So could we just jump in for my audience's sake? Like, who are you? What is your sure. background? How did you get into uh, libertarianism? Yeah. So my name's Topher Field uh, and I'm an addict. No, 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 sorry, different media. <laughs> no, so I um, I became an accidental politi- political commentator back in 2009. People say, how did that happen? How did you accidentally become a political commentator? Well, I was working in a warehouse. I've always been very blue collar. I was working in a warehouse. I was driving a forklift in a refrigerated warehouse, supplying all of the fruit and veg to, to grocery stores in, my, in, in Southeast Australia. And my cousin who also worked there came in and said, Topher, you should apply for Project Next. I said, what's Project Next? I'd never, never heard of it. And there's a, a journalist in Australia, a very well-respected journalist by the name of Andrew Denton, and he was creating a new show for the purpose of discovering the next generation of talent in terms of researchers, writers, producers, presenters for, for news. And in order to audition, you had to produce a video. I went, oh, that looks like a lark, and I know how to produce videos. My dad was in television, community television when I was growing up. I've been handling equipment since I was not even a teenager, and I've, I've edited or remastered hours of, of broadcast television that's gone to air on, on community TV in Australia. So from a te- technical standpoint, I knew how to do that. So I went and had some fun, <clears throat> spent a week making this video, submitted it as my application to Project Next, and of course never heard back, which is typical in, mm-hmm. in the industry. If they don't want you, they don't ring you up and say, no, thank you. They just You just never hear from them. So I was left with this video, and this is 2009. This is YouTube at this point, perhaps four or five years old. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, people, we forget how much the world has changed and how yeah. quickly it's changed. It was only four yeah. or five years old. So I started up a brand new YouTube channel with zero subscribers and I wow. uploaded the video to YouTube and I sent the link to my mum because, well, what else do you do? <laughs> what else do you do with it? Your number one fan. <laughs> That's right. And long story short, it ended up with about 30,000 views, which in Australia for a 12 minute long video that was actually quite technical mm-hmm. and actually it was focused on irrigation water, po- oh, excuse me, on, on um, residential water supply into Melbourne, a city that was in a drought at the mm-hmm. time. To, to amass 30,000 views on that was, was quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And then people began asking, me to do more videos and I kept on saying no guys I'm a forklift driver mm-hmm. like what's what in the world do you want me to be doing videos for you and that was the first clue that I really got to just how broken the media landscape actually already was mm. even back then in 2009 that people would see one video from a nobody and say please will you cover this story They'd all reached out to newspapers before, even the local ones. They'd reached out to all the journalists. No one was willing to talk about these issues that they were bringing to me. Right. I kept saying no because it wasn't, what am I going to do? 
Yeah. And, and then eventually someone brought to me a, a topic that was related to the first topic that I'd already covered but evolved that. And, and I looked and went, actually, yeah, I will do this video. And in a sense, that was when Topher, the political commentator, was kind of born and uh, was in that decision, yes, I will make a video and I will try and make a difference on this mm. issue. So I've continued ever since. Uh, I've been speaking out on issues of free speech, on issues of overregulation, red tape, green tape, uh, the negative impact that government has on our lives and uh, on, <laughs> on water policy is actually one of my major things, irrigation water policy. In the uh, the southeast of Australia has been a continuous uh, topic of mine all the way through. So communicating really kind of dry, complex topics, but in a way that hopefully people resonate with and they understand. So then as someone with a modest following, you know, I, I won the, the Libertarian Activist of the Year Award in 2016. Um, and it was actually thanks to a guy by the name of Tim Andrews that I discovered what a libertarian actually is. Now, he's an Australian-American. He split okay. his time between the two. And I knew I wasn't a conservative anymore. I yeah. was raised as a conservative. But yeah. I knew that wasn't me yeah. anymore. But I didn't know what I was. And he discovered one of my videos on freedom of speech. And he said, oh, it's nice to find a fellow libertarian. And I said, a fellow what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was actually the journey of him explaining to me what that was. And I went, oh, my goodness, there's a name. Yes. There's a name for this. Yeah. Um, and then obviously I've spent a lot more time you know, reading, discussing, interviewing others and, and so forth and really philosophically getting a really good grounding on what that what that means to yeah. be a libertarian. So I won the, the Libertarian Activist of the Year Award in Australia in 2016 and then COVID came along in 2020 and boy, did my life change. So that's fascinating. The, the award you won, the 2016 award, mm. did you... Was it centered on a particular event? Was, was there a speech given? Like, could you just fill, specific, give us some color there? Yeah, it's a specific video. And actually, Tim Andrews was the one who had the idea for the video and yeah. then handed it to me and I executed it. We were trying to get governments around Australia, state governments around Australia, to deregulate taxis so that Uber and Lyft and these other companies could oh, compete. Okay. And again, we forget how quickly the world has changed. This yeah. is 2016. It's only yeah. eight years ago. And Uber was illegal in Australia. <clears throat> and so what they did was they said, okay, fine, we'll do the deregulation, but we're going to pay an absolute fortune in compensation for the taxi plate license holders. It was going to cost Australian taxpayers or New South Wales taxpayers in the state of New South Wales hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars. And this is not a, you know, this is a, the biggest state in Australia, but mm -hmm. compared to America, these are, these are relatively small you know, populations. Mm -hmm. So we weren't particularly happy about that. And so Tim's idea was to create a campaign centered around an organization called the Coalition of Obsolete Industries, mm. representing all of the industries that technology has rendered obsolete. Mm. Candlestick makers, farriers, the, 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 the um, not DVD, the VHS rental companies, yeah. all of this sort of thing. And so we, we put together graphics, we put together a campaign, and then I led a protest where we had, I was dressed up as a, one of those guys that used to uh, empty toilets, mm -hmm. you know, the, the night watch, you know, yeah, yeah. person emptying toilets. We had a candlestick maker and other people all dressed up in period costumes. And uh, we were handing out flyers on the streets of New South Wales and urging people to support the coalition of obsolete industries. And it was just one of those shoots, the, one of those video shoots that just went perfectly. It became greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. Everyone involved in that. So there were a bunch of just, they weren't actors, they were just our fellow libertarians who got on board the project and they performed brilliantly. <laughs> and then the interactions with the public were hysterically funny. So then I edited all of that into a two and a half minute video and I, I put it against some music from Carmen, you know, classical classical music from Carmen. And I released that video and it went nuts. It went very, very viral. Less than a week later, the New South Wales government announced its actual decision on compensation and they had reduced the amount of com compensation by hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. And the only variable that people who look at these sorts of things could, could find yeah. that could have triggered that because they did not telegraph that at all. 
they were always talking it was going to be here. Yeah. Then all of a sudden the decision comes out and it's there. Yeah. And the only variable that they could identify was that campaign, that video. Wow. And on that basis, I was awarded the Australian Libertarian Activist of the Year for saving taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars. Oh, fantastic. Well done. Oh, thank you. And, and, and an example that activism actually works, right? Yeah. Like if you don't, and we'll get into this later, right? If you don't like the law or the rules that you can take action and change it. Yeah. Um, and it seems a little bit, it's almost silly that we, new technologies that disrupt old things they obviously are a net benefit to people, but there's all, always a resistance to it, right? The analogy I like to commonly use is the Italian shoemaker is always going to protest the shoemaking factory that opens up down the street, you yes. know? Yes. Whereas even though the factory's obviously better for everyone in a net productivity sense, the individuals that are going to lose their jobs, the, the creative destruction, if you will, in the mm. short run um, is, is tends to be resisted. So we need activism to push back against that resistance, frankly. Well, on the activist side of things, the future is written by those who show up. Yeah. So so if you're an activist, there's no guarantee that you'll change things. Mm-hmm. But if no one is out there trying to change things, I can guarantee that you won't. Right. right? So the future is written by those who show up. You've, right. you've got to be willing to show up yeah. and take the risk that you invest the time, the energy, the money, you take the risks that we'll be talking yeah. about soon. And maybe it doesn't work. Maybe it doesn't change anything. Yeah. But if you don't take those risks and if you're not willing to risk paying that price, then you definitely won't change anything. So that'd be my first point. On the issue of, of technology and, and this creative destruction of, of mm-hmm. the markets, Economists talk about the problem of distributed benefits and concentrated losses. So let's take, for example, that that factory, okay? Mm. There is a distributed benefit where the cost of everyone's shoes goes down a little bit. It's not a life-changing benefit, but when you add up all the industries that are doing this continuously throughout our lives, our quality of life improves very, very quickly. The problem is a couple of bespoke shoemakers go out of business. Now, Mm. not all all of them because some of them find niches and clientele where they can still survive, but some of them will. And for them, it is a life-changing event. I've lost my entire business. Now in today's media world and social media world, what we see is every time there's concentrated losses on one person, the media pile in there, you know, a current affair or whatever, I don't know what your equivalent is of like a, a, a current affairs type of show. They're there with a camera getting sob stories and asking mm-hmm. leading questions to make them cry and, and do all of those sorts yeah. of things. And they run that and it's all over the front page of the newspaper and it goes viral on, on YouTube. Here's this horrible thing that's happening to this person. And it's very difficult to make a counter video of like, mm-hmm. yes, but you, you, you can save $20 every time you buy a pair of Like that's not exactly a compelling counter argument here. But actually, unfortunately, uh, for all of us, we are we are all going to be made obsolete a couple of times in our lifetimes. That's that's the maths on that now. Yeah, and that's actually a good thing. This is the nature of adaptation, right? Is yeah, you get distributed benefits, which are much more difficult to get on camera, as Mm -hmm. you're saying, Mm -hmm. but very easy to go and film the concentrated losses, right? The the crying Italian shoemaker who's closing down his his shop. Although I think if if Bitcoin does this, does its thing. We'll have concentrated losses on the bankers, which I don't think too many people will be sympathetic towards. Good They'll have to- a lot of distributed benefits. So that might be one exception. Yeah, that might be one exception. <laughs> the Bitcoin actually breaks a lot of these rules, actually. It's a really yeah. interesting technology, which I'm happy to talk about later. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I, I have sympathy for the producer who's trying to do a sob story for the banks. Yes. That's a tough gig. Yes. <laughs> and is, this also reminded me of Henry Hazlitt's book, uh, Economics in One Lesson. Mm-hmm. The tricky thing about economics is that he talks about it being the seen versus the unseen. Yeah. Right. We see the Italian shoemaker's factory or shop closing down. Yeah. We don't see that the factory is lowering the cost of everyone's shoes 
$20, yeah. which if you add all of it up, is a huge economic gain. And you can't see yet what will replace that Italian shoemaker's little shop in that yeah. particular location and the opportunity that's being created, nor will you ever notice what everyone else has done with the extra $20 they have in their pocket every time they buy a pair of shoes. Exactly. You'll never see exactly. all of those distributed benefits. Exactly. And it's the, the aggregation of those benefits that basically is indistinguishable from the process of civilization. So we should not fight it. We should accept it. And this is why when, when a survey was done with American, I believe it was university students, this is a few years ago now, they went back to uh, Rockefeller mm-hmm. and they sort of mapped out his life and what, mm-hmm. his, what the day-to-day reality of his life was. And they went and they did a survey and they said to, to these students, they said, would you like to trade places with the richest man in the world 120 odd years ago, whenever that mm-hmm. was? Would you like to trade places and become the richest person on earth? And they all said, well, yeah, that sounds pretty good. They said, okay, but before you make up mm-hmm. your mind, let's go through a day in the life of. And of course, there were no there were no pain medications. There was no there was no antibiotics. If you wanted to travel somewhere, you got pulled by a horse over cobblestone roads and bounced around. Um, you couldn't communicate with people who who yeah. you know who lived on the other side of the world. There were so many limitations. And by the time they actually went through the realities of his life, yeah. the overwhelming majority of students so said, that. "Actually, I'd rather keep the life I have right now 100%. and not be the richest person in the world." Yes, that's how far we've come, and it's it's lost on a lot of people. Yes, no, that is a fantastic point that even people in the middle or lower middle class today lead better lives than royalty Mm -hmm. even just a few hundred years ago. I always look at the refrigerator. I mean, every time you open your refrigerator, you should marvel at the miracle of engineering that that is, that we figured out to create a box that pumps out heat and preserves food for long periods of time. And then you can go down the street to the grocery store and you can choose foods from all over the world, out of season, doesn't matter. Like it's, it's amazing what we've built through capitalism. Can we talk about gratitude for a second? Yes, please. All right. right. So there's been lots of research on this. I'm sure that won't be new to your viewers. Enormous amounts of research, the difference that an attitude of gratitude makes in your life. Uh, For for you as the person who chooses to have that attitude, it completely transforms your entire outlook. There's a comedian whose name escapes me and I'm sorry that it does. So full credit to the comedian who responsible for this (laughs) came up with a routine called everything's amazing and nobody's happy. (laughs) And it went viral. He did it on a talk show and he talked about the fact that he was on a plane and an announcement came over on the plane saying, oh, we're very sorry to say that the Wi-Fi uh, isn't working on this flight. And he, he's sitting there going, this is a couple of years ago, he's sitting there going, I didn't know the Wi-Fi on planes was a thing, <laughs> right? But the guy next to me goes, oh, this sucks. Yeah. And he's already adapted yes. to having this luxury yes. good to be able to access information from any computer anywhere in the world whilst whilst moving along at 600 miles an hour and 40,000 feet. And yeah, he just yeah. adapted and that became his entitlement. And the yes. minute it was taken away, all of a sudden his day was ruined yes. by that. And for, for me, I learned this when I was in recruit course. I, I spent a couple of years in the Australian Army. And when I was in recruit course, I had to figure out how I was going to process and deal with the fact that it's unpleasant. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not impossibly unpleasant, but it's unpleasant and deliberately so. Mm-hmm. If, if you don't have a strong mental capacity, then they want you to weed yourself out. They want you to give up. That's the point. So I learned to focus on what I did have. And every night when I went to sleep, I'd say, I have drinkable water in my water bottles that is Mm. not going to give me diarrhea or dysentery and Mm -hmm. make me die. I have something under my head. Now, what was under my head might have just been the wedding, the, the, mm-hmm. the stuff that you wear on a march on a you know frozen piece of ground in, the, in Pakapanil in the middle of winter. But I had something to put my head on that wasn't a rock. Mm-hmm. And I just boiled my life down. Mm-hmm. You know, there is food that I will get to eat at some point tomorrow. Yes. I might only eat once, but yes. there's food. Yeah. And it's good food. It's nutritious. It doesn't necessarily taste good, but it's nutritious <laughs> yeah. food. It's good for me. Yeah. And I'll get to eat it tomorrow. And I boiled my life down to those most basic things. Yes. And one of the most amazing things, I was only in the army for a few years. I never deployed. I'm not claiming anything there. 
But the legacy that that experience left left me in my life is an ability to have gratitude under practically any circumstance. And it's one of the greatest things anyone's taught me. That's phenomenal. I've never been in the army, but I did a gratitude journal for a year. Yeah. And there were real differences in just writing down things that you're grateful for on a daily basis. I think this also segues nicely into stoicism where you start to, there's a practice in stoicism called negative visualization. Right. So if you imagine really anything that you're doing, that it could be the last time you'll ever do it. This could be as something as taking a a sip of water. If you imagine it's the last sip of water you'll ever take, Mm. you're going to appreciate it a lot more. Mm. It could be as something as sentimental as hugging your mother, right? Yeah. If you imagine, hey, it's the last time I'm going to hug my mother. Yeah. That puts it a lot more to things. it. So just that little mental hack can mm. really like rev up the gratitude and the gratitude lends itself to giving you a better attitude. It's life changing. In all conditions. Yeah. I want to, you brought up COVID though. Mm. So, so the, the pandemic that had a very significant impact on your life and I guess partly responsible for why we met, I'm, I'm, yeah. I assume here. So yeah. Let's start there. I guess we're starting in probably March 2020. Well, that's when the lockdown started. So okay. late 2019 was when the first rumours uh, were being heard. And my mum got in touch with me because she knows I keep my finger on the pulse with a lot of things around the world as a, as a you know, back then a part-time political commentator. And I said, look, this thing is going to blow over. We've seen SARS and MERS and swine flu and all sorts of different things. Um, this is going to be in the same category. It's, it's going to blow over. Don't worry about it. And I maintain that that's what should have happened. That's exactly how it should have played out. But what happened was was people in power and people with agendas got a hold of it and turned it into something completely different, which I did not see coming. In March 2020, we went into lockdown in Australia. So Australia is a continent island. And we have the, the ability, if we so choose, to shut our borders more effectively than just about anywhere else on the world. In, in the world, you'd have to be Antarctica to, to shut your borders more effectively than what sure. we can. I'm not saying that that's what we should have done, but we have the capacity to do it in a way that a place like the US is going to be more challenged in in doing. So we went into lockdowns in the middle of March 2020, and I immediately released a video making the point that lockdowns were only prolonging Mm -hmm. the pandemic, were keeping us in the pandemic. The only way through is to let this thing spread and let people get natural immunity. So I released a video in which I said, I volunteered to be infected with the coronavirus, right? My rationale is very, very simple. By then we had some data. It wasn't nearly as good mm-hmm. as what we've got now, but we had some data. And the the, the threat curve was very, very evident. Mm-hmm. And as someone who at the time was less than 40, yeah, a little bit overweight compared to what I ought to be as an ideal weight, but not morbidly obese mm-hmm. and otherwise healthy. COVID represented a negligible threat to me, mm-hmm. similar to taking a long drive in the car. Mm-hmm. You know, if you drove for two days in mm-hmm. the car, your risk of dying in that two days is about the same as your risk of dying from COVID right. if you fit my profile. I, so I did the maths on that. I literally figured that out. I went, oh. do I think about death if I'm going to drive from Melbourne to Brisbane? No, not really. Okay, so mm-hmm. should I be thinking about it if I catch COVID? No, not really. So I said, look, if right. there was a program where I could go somewhere and be given a swab and then go home and stay away from everybody for 14 days until I've gotten over it and, mm-hmm. and now I've got immunity, I will sign up for that program and I will lock myself away for 14 days. With the idea being that once enough of us have done that, the, the reproduction rate, of course, as, you, as more and more people develop immunity, the reproduction rate declines, mm-hmm. not because necessarily the virus is less, um, less infectious, but because more people are, are immune. And so therefore there will come a point where the elderly and the vulnerable can return back into society because the levels of this virus are, are very low now because mm-hmm. too many people have immunity for it to be able to spread and, and right. to go viral. So I made a video making that point. I got attacked. People, oh, you're trying to make it all about you, you know, just you know, attention-seeking, whatever. 
whatever. I'm like, no, no, no I, I gave you the logic here. I, I did an infographic on it and the whole lot. Like mm-hmm. I, I explained the plan. Then when that video got a bit of bit of traction, someone reached out to me and said, hey, I'm organizing a protest against lockdowns because by now that extended for over a month. So we were told two weeks to, to flatten the curve. Oh, just another week. Oh, just another week. Yeah. And it was becoming very obvious that this was going to turn into a nightmare. So someone reached out to me and said, I'm organizing a protest against the lockdowns and I've seen your video and I, I want you to come. I want you to come and speak. Now, understand, up to that point in my life, I was a goody two-shoes. Mm-hmm. I was not someone – I mean, I'd only ever been on the good side of the police. I've never even lost my license for crying out – like like nothing. I've never taken any drug that was rated as illegal by the government. Still haven't to this day. I'm just not interested. I was the cleanest of clean skins. And I was raised that way. I was raised to be obedient, mm. to respect the government, to respect yeah. law enforcement. All of that was very much a part of my upbringing. And so here I was being asked not to speak at a rally but to, for the first time in my life, actively walk out my door for the purpose of breaking the law. And so I had a bit of a wrestle with that. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a challenging sort of decision to make. And in hindsight, it shouldn't have been challenging, but it was the first time I'd thought through these Well, issues. a bit of an identity crisis Correct. probably Correct. at that point, yeah. the initial time. It, 100%. Yeah. I, I talk about that in my book, Good People Break Bad Laws. This was an identity crisis yeah. wrapped up in, in, a, in a decision. So I said yes. And I'm driving and it was about an hour away from my house. And we weren't supposed to. So let me give you, give you the profile here. We're locked in our house 23 hours a day. We're not mm-hmm. allowed to leave. For one hour a day, we can leave if we have a, a valid excuse, which is shopping for essential items, medical care, uh, providing support to others who can't look after themselves, or if you're an essential worker. Does this mean not go outside your house? You like could, if in you're your inside yard? your own block in your yard, okay. yes. Um, okay. But woe betide anyone. So there were literally, there was a curfew at 8 p.m. And there were literally people who were arrested because they took their bins out onto the street after 8 p.m. It was, it was ridiculously wow. strictly enforced. They would go, the police would be patrolling in parks. And if someone was sitting on a park bench in the sun, they'd be told either get up and keep exercising or, or go home or we will arrest you because wow. sitting in the sun was not considered a valid reason to leave home. You have to be exercising, right? So it was, it was nuts. We lost yeah. our minds. Mm-hmm. We completely lost mm-hmm. our minds. Play, playgrounds were shut down. You couldn't take your kids mm-hmm. to playgrounds. They put concrete bollards on top of skate parks and things to stop people mm-hmm. from, from being able to use those. Schools were shut down. So it's in that kind of a context that I then drove an hour and you, there was a five kilometer radius, about three mile radius around your home that you're allowed to go. And they would have the sheriff's department out there with number plate scanners checking your, your address. Wow. And if they found that you're outside of your five kilometers, they'd pull you over and say, why are you here? Right. Show me, show me that you've got a valid excuse mm. to, you know, essential work or something like that. Right. So it, it was nuts. I drove an hour hoping not to get stopped by the cops to where this protest was. And I sat there in the car. The police were already on site. Uh, they knew there was a protest planned there and they were already on site. And no doubt there were more police uh, were going to be not far away. And I sat there having another you know, round two of that same identity crisis. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was I grabbed my phone and I went live on Facebook because at that point I couldn't back down. I, I hoped, we all hope we're not cowards. We all hope that if, our, if we were tested mm-hmm. in some meaningful way that we would be the one that steps up. We would be the one that leads from the front. We all want to be that person. Yeah. But the truth is if we're humble enough to admit it, none of us can be sure that we're that person until the test happens. That's right. And I was in the middle of my test right in that moment there. Yeah. And I just, I knew that I could have made a decision either way. Mm-hmm. And I knew what the right decision was. That was clear. There was a big part of me that wanted to go the wrong way. Right. And so I basically bullied myself. Where, you say right decision versus mm. the other decision. Where, what is the source or the, the driving force of the right decision? Do you yeah. Think? Okay. Now we're going to go deep. 
So the slogan that I live by now is good people break bad laws. And that, that is a five-word slogan. It's a summary of Martin Luther King when he said one has both a legal and a moral obligation to obey just laws. Mm-hmm. Conversely, one has a moral obligation to disobey unjust laws. Mm-hmm. Now, that, unfortunately, in the TikTok generation, uh, that's way too long. People mm-hmm. aren't going to listen to the whole thing. So I distilled it down to five words. Mm-hmm. Good people break bad laws. Mm-hmm. But the most important word there is bad. What makes a bad law? How do you know you're not just being an asshole you know, and, and, and just doing whatever you you're want? You're front-running on one of my questions for you. Oh, there you go. <laughs> So there are two tests to know whether a law is bad. The first is a practical utilitarian test and the second is a principles test. Now, if it fails either of those tests, I would argue that it's a bad law. I would suggest that you be cautious about civil disobedience unless it fails both of those tests. Mm. Once it fails both tests, at that point, I think you have a moral obligation to engage in civil disobedience. So the first was utilitarian. Is it doing more harm than good? Correct. Which is... Mm, there's some judgment there. It can there. be subjective, yep. correct, yep. which is why I wouldn't encourage civil disobedience yep. on the basis of a single one alone. The second one, which is principles, does the government even have the authority to do this? Likewise, if it fails that test but it's not really hurting anyone, right. civil disobedience can do a lot more harm than good because sure. you could work through other mechanisms, legislative right. or, or what yep. have you, to try and reform that. But once it's both at the same time, once it fails the principles test, the government yes. cannot have this as a legitimate authority and this is hurting people. At that point, I think in, we in invoke, and, and, and in the words of Martin Luther King, a moral obligation to disobey unjust laws. Yes. So as I sat in that park, uh, in the car, looking at the park and thinking about whether I was going to go out and speak at an illegal protest, for me, the lockdowns that we were protesting against were unquestionably hurting people. Uh-huh. And secondly, in principle, the government does not have the authority to tell me that I can't protest. Of course not. And so yeah. it fails on both fronts, the yeah. utilitarian and on the principle. So I went live because as soon as it went live, if I backed out... Forget multivitamins and other supplements. Animal organs are the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. You can get 100 times more nutrients from organs than you can from muscle meats. But the problem with eating organs is that they are difficult to find in stores, they are difficult to prepare, and even when they are prepared well, they often don't taste great. Thankfully, Heart and Soil Supplements has made consuming organ meats so much easier by providing powderized organs in capsule form. Organ meats include everything your body needs to thrive. Vitamins, minerals, peptides, proteins, and growth factors. This is why organ meats were the most prized foods for our ancestors. Fortunately for us, Heart and Soil makes these treasured foods easily accessible. So go to heartandsoil.co today and use discount code BREEDLOVE to get started on your journey to optimal health and vitality. Again, that's heartandsoil.co, discount code BREEDLOVE. whole world was going to know that I was a coward. Sure. Yeah. And at that point, I'd trapped myself. Yeah. And I got out of the car and I walked across the street. And there were a few other people already gathered and the police were kind of talking amongst themselves. So we, we hadn't reached the madness later on. We weren't at the rubber bullets and the tear gas and the, yeah. the beatings and mass arrests yet. Yeah. That, that all came later. And the police were talking amongst themselves to try and figure out what they should do. And they came to us as more and more of us gathered. We ended up with about 70 people there that day. And they came to us and they said, all right, we're coming back in one hour and we're arresting anyone who's still here. Now, what we heard was you've got an hour to do what you need to do and then then so that's what we did wow 
when you're describing the the roving bands of police that mm. were checking people's license plates against their address to make sure they were in this, the approved vicinity, this all sounds like a dress rehearsal to me for 15-minute cities. Oh, it gets worse. I haven't mentioned the Ring of Steel. Okay, please. Yeah. I, I just, I, I want to just get your opinion on, like, what was yeah. your view on what's actually taking place yeah. versus, you know, obviously it's being purported for our safety, but mm. what is your view on what's actually going on oh the, i'm from the government and i'm here to help of course of course it's for our safety <laughs> so we had a thing called the ring of steel so in addition to that five kilometer limit that was enforced fairly ad hoc by sheriffs with number plate scanners on the side of the road we had hard checkpoints around the metropolitan melbourne area so mm-hmm. melbourne is a city of about four and a half million people victoria is a state of six or six and a half million people so mm-hmm. outside of, of melbourne you had another mm-hmm. million and a half two million people that lived in rural victoria and regional victoria and so they put checkpoints on every one of the major highways going mm-hmm. into and out of melbourne and roadblocks on a lot of the other smaller roads so you couldn't use them. And I'm not making this up. They had military on those checkpoints. And you would have to sit in a queue. It was like going through a border. Sit in a queue, someone, you know, wind down your window, talk to someone, show them papers, enough paperwork that satisfies them that you have a legitimate reason for crossing over that particular checkpoint line. And then they would let you on, on, on your way. To your 15-minute cities question, whether it's intentional or not, it definitely had the effect of deadening people's conscience and sensitivity to that level of interference in their lives. There are cameras on the side of the road that are going to get you in trouble if you're more than five k's from your home. There are checkpoints that you have to pass through in a free country to be allowed to go to, to this place. It had that effect, regardless of whether that was intentional. Now, I would say that there may have been some intent there because what we've seen from politicians and from these unelected bureaucrats, World Economic Forum, UN type since, is they talk about, you know, we had near universal compliance with lockdowns. We had near universal compliance with vaccine mandates. We need to figure out how to do better next time. So in their minds, and by the way, the next time isn't necessarily another another pandemic, real or imagined. Next time is actually shaping up to be very likely to be based around climate change and carbon emissions reduction. Yes, right. And that's what we see in Oxfordshire and yeah. in the UK and other places where they are trialing these 15-minute cities. Now, there is a world of difference between an urban planning doctrine that says we're going to try and make sure that if someone wanted to, they could cycle or walk to all of the, the main amenities, sure. right? There's a world of difference between that as an as a urban planning doctrine yes. and we are going to punish you if you choose to go right. beyond that 15-minute yes. limit. The first part I have no issue with. I have an issue with there being you know, government uh, urban planning, but putting that aside for a right. second, the first one's nice. That's about amenity and quality of yeah. life. The second one is about tyranny and yes. that's what they want. And the line is consent, right? You can opt in or opt Correct. out of. If you want to opt into an urban planning situation that's bikeable, walkable, etc., mm-hmm. so be it. Mm-hmm. Let everyone do what they want. Mm-hmm. But to try and cage people into some type of tax farm and yep. tell them where they can go, when they can go, yeah. uh, and remove their ability to go if they don't cooperate or they don't say the right things on social media, like this is uh, very concerning, yeah. right? 21st century style tyranny. The combination of that with CBDCs yes. is, is digital prison. Yes. It's, it's that simple. Number plate scanners by the side of the road and CBDCs. Yeah. And at that point, we are all living in house arrest. At yes. That and that's, I mean, I've lived in house arrest 23 hours a day, uh, yes. you know, seven days a week, four months at a stretch. It ain't fun. Yes. And I don't want the digital version of it either. No, that that is very true. Okay, so when we, again, we met originally in ARC, 
saw you recently in DC at Liberty Con. We had the opportunity to do a quick interview together again, invited you down to Miami. When we first saw each other though, you were telling me a story. It's something I think has become a project that you're working on, but you were saying that there was a point, and I don't, I don't, if I'm jumping the gun here, feel free to backtrack. There was a point where you were under the threat of arrest and you said it was causing you a lot of anxiety until you actually, I think with your wife, put pen to paper and said, here is our contingency planning. If this, if A happens, then we do B. If B happens, then we have option C, D, E. And as soon as you got all of that externalized into a plan, that suddenly you were relieved of your anxiety. Yeah. Where, where does that episode fit into your, your story here? Yeah, so one of the things you've got to keep in mind is this unfolded over 18 months for us. I, I realize in most of the US, if there were lockdowns at all in your part of the US, it was a couple of weeks, a couple of months at the most, and then, then things kind of went mostly back to normal. Right. There were attempts at vaccine mandates and various things like that, but that that's a, that's a separate story. For us, it was 18 months of on and off, but mostly on lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And those lockdowns would change form every day. The, mm-hmm. our, in Victoria, the state of Victoria, our premier, which is the equivalent of a US governor, he would massage the rules every day, change them slightly, and hold a one-hour press conference. He held a, 140 one-hour press conferences consecutively in consecutive days. And he was just making minute adjustments to the rules, so you had to hang on every word. You had to watch every single time because, oh, but the rules have changed today. I have to be up to date. And what he was doing was he was he was basically encouraging and cultivating a Stockholm syndrome. Is what he was exactly. What he was doing. I was just gonna, yeah, yeah. That's that, and and I think he knew that. I think that yeah. was entirely intentional on his part. Now, anyone that spoke up instantly became an enemy of the state. And over the preceding eighteen months, I'd seen video after video. So anyone that was was vocal, and even the ones that weren't vocal but were behind the scenes, the minute the police came to their door they would go live on Facebook. That was just a default defensive mechanism. Don't record it on your phone, live stream it to the internet. So that no matter what happens, no matter what they do to your phone, that evidence such as it is, is out there. And so I'd seen police using battering rams, handheld battering rams to smash through people's front doors, physically tackling them. Some of these people got hospitalized, such was the violence of the arrest. Now these people were not resisting. These, I'm not, Mm -hmm. you know, this is Australia Mm -hmm. we're talking about Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. You know, they weren't, they're they're not armed and they weren't resisting. They might've been verbally you know, sure. giving them a piece of their mind, sure. but, but that was their crime. Right, for, that, so. for that, they got hospitalized in some cases. We'd seen pregnant mothers getting arrested in front of their children and handcuffed in their pajamas. Now that one went viral. Her name was Zoe Bueller. Now she, all, her crime was that she spoke up and she said, hey, everybody, let's get together at a park and while we're there, protest these lockdowns. Now the key detail in her case was that she was on the outside of that ring of steel that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. the military checkpoints, and the rules were different out there and it was actually completely fine for anyone to get together in parks and have picnics, mm. etc. Mm. out where she was. But the minute she made a Facebook post saying it's going to be about you know, protesting, she's arrested in her own home in front of her kids. So just making the Facebook post brought the police to, to her to door. To her house. To break her door. No, and in their her? case, in their okay. case, they were home and, okay. and they answered the door and they uh, arrested her. And they arrested for her for a Facebook post. And she had to fight criminal charges for for years wow. out of that. So I'm watching this happening, and yeah. I'm becoming more and more sort of more and more the last man standing. It yeah. got to the point I was almost feeling a bit offended that they hadn't come for me yet because <laughs> I'd been vocal from the start. I'm yeah. like, what's what's wrong with me? Am I not? Yeah. Uh, am I not pretty enough? You know? <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with me? And. 
so, and then from a psychological point of view, and I know this is a long preamble to get to your, your question, but I want to paint the picture here. Yeah. Because of my profile, I had a lot of people coming to me in desperation, uh-huh. in despair, because their lives were being destroyed. Their businesses were destroyed. They were going bankrupt. They were losing their houses. Yeah. You know, their, their spouses were leaving them. Their kids were going insane, self-harming, all kinds. Of, like, it's, just, it's, it's devastation. When you yeah. impose that level of lockdown for that long, sure. it is devastating. And these people couldn't go to their church pastors because the churches had shut their doors. Right. They couldn't go to their mental health councils because they were booked out months in advance and then they'd only see you online anyway. Uh, they couldn't go to their families in many cases because their families were just compliant little terrified yeah. sheep sitting in their yeah. homes. And so in desperation, they would reach out to me because I'd seen my videos and seen me live streaming from protests and doing the things yeah. that I was doing. And they didn't expect me to have an answer or a solution. They just knew that I would actually listen yeah. and I would care. And that should give you some indication of the level of desperation, right? They'd yeah. stopped looking for a solution. They'd stopped right. looking for someone who could help. A lot of these people were suicidal or were, were, were trying to support family members who were suicidal. Over the journey, four different people who reached out to me who were suicidal, I, I later learned took their own lives, which is difficult, but... I would try and answer these people. And so I would have an avalanche in my inbox every day, emails and, and Facebook messages. And I moved my, my, my office into my garage because I didn't want to be near the kids. And I would sit there on my computer and try and answer these people. And I'd, be, I'd have tears rolling down my face while I'm trying to find words. Mm. And I started drinking mm. a lot. Now, I'm not historically, I'm not, a, I'm not a big drinker, but I began to drink just to numb the, the, the anxiety that began to come with every time I opened a new email, what am I going to see here? What's, am I going to find out that I've lost another one? Is this, you know, what's, I don't know what this is yet. And so I began to, to, I'd be physically, I'd be shaking and my eyes would be darting around the computer screen looking for keywords. You know, are they saying thank you? Cause I got a lot of those as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I'd be like, okay, I can read this one. Mm-hmm. But if I start to see, you know, angry, despair, uh, the worst phrase I've, I've come to realize, uh, the most dangerous phrase is nothing left. If it has mm. that in it, mm. that's, a, that's a big... Hopelessness, basically. Yeah. And so that's where I was at. I was dealing with all this, the reality of the lockdowns by day and trying to be a, a, on the front lines of the, the, the political pushback and the protests and risking getting beaten up by cops every Saturday because I'm gone to another protest. You know, there's, you know, there's mounted police, there's tear gas. I, I know what it's like to be tear gassed, to be pepper sprayed. I've been hit with a police baton. You know, all of that was happening on the weekends. By day, I'm trying to communicate with people and trying to urge more people to join us. And by night, I'm trying to keep people alive whilst at the same time, my own family's locked down. Mm-hmm. My wife's pregnant with our second kid. My business is getting destroyed. Thankfully, my wife's was was stable. She was already set up to yeah. do everything online. So that was the saving yeah. grace for us financially. Yeah. But there's all of that going on. And on top of that, I know that it's only a matter of time before I get arrested. That's the picture. So I began to not be able to sleep. And what would happen is I'd get a little bit, of, I'd finish answering people's emails at two, three o'clock in the morning and I'd go to bed and I'd get an hour or two of sleep. And then the first car door on the street, because mm-hmm. our bedroom was at the front of the house, mm-hmm. the first car door would wake me up. Because is that the mm-hmm. beginning, you know, is that officers mm-hmm. getting out of a car to raid? Because mm-hmm. they'd come at four or five in the morning. That was their preferred time to right. do it. I'd be waiting for the sound of the engine to start because if it did, then okay, it's someone leaving, not someone mm-hmm. arriving. But mm-hmm. if it was multiple doors and I didn't hear an engine, you better believe I was on my feet yeah. looking through the, the blinds yeah. to see, you know. And all of that took its toll. And I eventually, like I was going out of my mind. I was, I was drinking to the point that I was genuinely drunk every single night. I had a hangover during the day and and just was not this is what a, a breakdown looks yeah. like basically I'm yeah. having a breakdown yeah. and I finally like my wife obviously knew that everything was very very wrong but didn't know how to kind of address it so finally I went to her and I said okay this is not sustainable this is like something's got to change here and we talked it through and what we did 
I've got to backtrack slightly. When I proposed to my wife, I already knew the direction the world was going in. Mm. And I said to her, I genuinely believe that because of my work as a political commentator, I will end up in prison at some point in my life. Right? That's not, not trying to impress you. That's not hype. I didn't think it would happen this way, but mm. I genuinely believe that that would happen. I said, are you, are you okay with that? Because if you're not, now's the time, right? Because I, I, know, I know what's happening politically and the direction the world is going in, and I know myself. And I know that sooner or later, we are, we are going to be at cross purposes. Yeah. And my wife simply said to me, just make sure I know who to call. Wow. That was her reply. Just make sure I know who to call. And I said, okay, I can do that. Mm-hmm. So we, we both sort of remembered that as we were talking this through in this moment. And I said, I need to make sure you know who to call. So that's where we wrote the document. And mm-hmm. it was a branching document of different scenarios. Mm-hmm. Am I injured and in hospital? Am I missing? Does she not know where I am? Mm-hmm. Et cetera. All the different mm-hmm. scenarios, the names and phone numbers of every single person she had to call and the purpose of that conversation right, what she was calling them to do or, or to accomplish. Uh, and then a list of people to try and publicise the arrest. So this included a lot of the people I was now friends with after more than a decade, well over a decade of, of political commentary. This was sitting MPs and senators and influential people, mm-hmm. other people in the media that were sympathetic to me to be able to get the word out. Now, the day of the arrest finally came and I was in the garage, not drunk, thankfully. It was during the day and my phone rings with a blocked number. And I, I never, I, unless the, your number is saved in my phone, I don't answer it at mm-hmm. all, blocked or not. So I ignore it. And then it immediately rings the second time. I ignore it again. And then I hear a knock at the door, Mm. quite a polite knock Mm -hmm. at the door. And we had a drill. We had a family routine now. So my son, who at that point was, I think, four, wasn't allowed to answer the door. Mm -hmm. You know, every kid, oh, who is it? Mm -hmm. I want to see. No, no, he had to go to the back of the house because Mm. if it did become a forced entry situation, we didn't want him anywhere near debris. Then my wife would go and have a quick peek through the window. Or my wife would come to me and make sure that I was aware because I'd be getting my phone ready to go live. Yeah. Then she would peek through the window and she'd tell me who it was. And so she comes to me, she says, you ready? I'm like, yep. She goes to the window and she just calls out to me, it's them. And it's just adrenaline, just this dump of adrenaline all the way through my body. Sorry, it's still very visceral now. So she opened the door. There were two officers there. That was the first indication that I was one of the very, very lucky ones because normally there'd be six or eight. There were two officers. One of them was female. The other one was like six and a half feet and could have folded me in half Mm -hmm. if he'd wanted to. Mm -hmm. But... They just very politely asked my wife if I was home and I came out and I was live streaming at that point and they said, hey, um, uh, Topher, we've, um, we're here to arrest you for incitement. I've watched. You know, incitement. Is this is the I'll crime proposed. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll get to that. That's the weapon they yep. used against people like me. He said, I've watched all your videos. I feel like I know you very well and I know that you're not an idiot. So I tried to call you twice because I wanted you to come to the front door without yeah. us making a scene in front of your kids, blah, blah, blah. Are you happy to come quietly? I said, yeah, of course. I mean, you've seen my videos. You know me. I'm not yeah. a rabble. I'm not going to fight. Like, come on. So they actually let me close the door, go inside, talk to my wife and then come back out. They didn't handcuff me. They didn't anything. Mm. They were super chilled. So I was incredibly fortunate. Contrast that against mm-hmm. other people that end up in hospital right. with, you know, six or eight blokes for in the same body crime. armor. Crime. Same yeah, crime yeah, yeah, for the same, same thing, wow. right? So the incitement. Incitement was the charge they used to silence people like me. And what it is, it's a crime that was, that was invented and put on the books to deal with, let's say, someone who incites another person to commit terrorism or a violent crime or organized crime or these sorts of things. Oh, but I didn't pull the trigger. No, you didn't, but you incited somebody else to do it, right? So that's why they put it on the books. And of course, they always sell it to you on the basis of, oh, it's for the children or it's sure. for terrorism or, or these right. sorts of things. Is this supposed to be a, like a threat of immediate violence? Is that what it- It's supposed to be used in cases uh, where someone has, yeah, tried to incite somebody else or succeeded in inciting inciting somebody else to actually do harm. Okay, so hiring of a hitman or something that like that. That sort of thing. Absolutely. Okay. Right. Yeah, that would that would yeah. be the legitimate use of okay. incitement. 
But now they're saying, you're inciting people to breach the chief health officer's orders. Mm. Now, by this point in time, I'd, I'd learned, or by you know, certainly by the time I was arrested, I'd long known that the chief health officer's orders weren't even laws in the first place. They were just orders. Um, and so I'm not even sure that it fits the technical definition of incitement, let alone uh, anything re- representing what the purpose of the law was mm-hmm. when it was passed. But what they would do is they would find people like me, they would arrest us, and they would slap bail conditions on us to silence us. Now, we, we actually, we already knew this, but it was confirmed when a, a Melbourne man by the name of Marty Fokker, he was doing recording every single protest. He was out there with a camera, amazing guy, a lot of courage, and he got arrested on one occasion. And they made him turn his camera off, but he faked turning it off and he put the lens cap on and he shoved mm. it in his bag and the microphone was still recording. And so what we got out of that was audio. So he's he's been sat in a room, they waste your time as much as they can. So he's sitting there and there's different stuff going on around him. And we can hear an older male officer speaking to a younger officer in a hot mic type of situation. And he literally says, and we've got this, it's part of the documentary Battleground Melbourne, all we do is we trump up some charges so that we can slap them with bail conditions. And then if they come back, we can arrest them for the bail. It's mm. all bullshit anyway. It'll just go to court and get dismissed. That's, that's pretty close to a direct quote wow. from a police officer. So he knows that they are completely abusing the legal system for an illegal purpose to shut down protests and protesters. Then not long, the thing that made me know that I was next with the arrests was the arrest of a young woman by the name of Monica Smith. Now, she's an amazing woman. We should get her over to America and get her on your podcast. Mm-hmm. She spent 22 days in prison, most of that in solitary confinement. They arrested her on the side of the road. She'd, she'd gone outside of her five kilometers to go and do a podcast, an interview mm-hmm. with somebody. And they were obviously tracking her phone because they knew exactly where she was. And they got her as she went, she was heading home. They arrested- Tracking her phone. Is this, I don't know, in the US, I think you have to have a warrant for that. Is that just normal practice in Australia? <sighs> the way the way it unfolded during COVID was basically they said, there's an emergency, we'll do whatever we want. Well, In, pr- in practice, that's the way it worked yeah. out. And the courts thus far have mostly upheld that. Wow. I think that that will get overturned yeah. in time, right. but long after too it's way too, too late. late. So they could do just about anything they wanted with pretty much impunity. So they arrested her. And the way it works in the Australian system is they'll say, right, we're putting bail conditions on you. Uh, you either have to sign the bail conditions and agree that you'll abide by them, or you stay in prison until a judge looks at the bail conditions to determine what's reasonable and what's not. And mm-hmm. we kind of negotiate a, a mm-hmm. set of bail conditions mm-hmm. you'll accept. The bail conditions they put in front of her, and this is going to sound like I'm making it up, but I promise you I'm not. She had to shut down her political party. This is direct political interference. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, she hasn't been found guilty of a crime. She's just being arrested bail under suspicion of a crime. Right. The bail conditions say shut down your political party, take off your website and all of your social media pages, anything that is critical of the government and the government's COVID response, which is basically everything because that's what she was about, and we're going to shut down your bank accounts, and you're going to agree to all of this in the bail conditions. So she said, no, I'm not going to agree to that. Yeah. And I said, well, you're going to prison. She said, fine, put me in prison. Oh. Monica Smith is her name. You'd, 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 wow. we, should get her in, we should get her over to America. Wow. In the end, she was in prison for 22 days until the judge finally said these bail conditions are completely unconscionable and amended them to something that she could then sign mm-hmm. in good conscience. Uh, she's written a book about it called Cell 22. Amazing woman, amazing story. Now that happened and I just somehow knew as soon as I saw her get arrested, there was something about that that, I knew my turn was coming real soon. And that was actually then that I made that list with my wife, that four-page wow. plan. Then after the arrest, I got home. So I, I made sure that my phone was nowhere to be seen or found when mm-hmm. I got arrested. Um, once they let me back inside, so obviously I was live streaming mm-hmm. and then they let me back inside. I'm like, I ain't taking my phone with me. So I got home and discovered that 
I had hundreds of text messages and missed phone calls and everything. And a lot of the people that were on the list that my wife was supposed to call, mm-hmm. they'd seen my live stream, which immediately went viral thanks mm-hmm. to a couple of independent journalists over mm-hmm. there. And then it just blew up and actually became, in the alternative media, it became national news, basically. Wow. That Topher Field's been arrested. Yeah. And there was something about that that was a really, I mean, Monica's arrest was horrific, and especially the bail conditions, but it was a bit more expected, I think. I yeah. think there was a sense, because I'm a little bit older, I'm a dad with kids, um, you know, I've been a political commentator for a long time before yeah. COVID came along. It's kind of like, well, if they're going to get him, no right. one's safe. Like he's, this is a respectable guy mm-hmm. who's not a rabble rouser and he's just continuing his work as a political commentator and now human rights activist. And they're shutting him down. Mm. And it shocked a lot of people and, and went viral. And I'm, I'm so grateful that it did because it's one of the most, um, you know, when you feel like you've been screaming into the void for a sure. very long time, you know, we were made to feel very alone during that time. And then that was just the most tangible evidence possible that I was having an impact and, wow. and that people were, you know, were, were, were connecting with what I was doing. So it, it actually worked out to be a really beautiful thing. Wow. And after the arrest, that's when I finally slept like a baby. Right. <laughs> Rightfully earned. How long were you actually in? This is what I mean when I say I was incredibly lucky. I was out the same day. Okay. The bail conditions they put in front of me were absolutely minimal. Okay. They could not have done, they could not have put less. Got on. it. And I think part of it was I actually owe thanks to Monica Smith for that because when she stood her ground and yeah. set that example, right. I think the police knew. They felt that they'd pushed too far. If they did the same thing to me, yeah. I would do the same thing. But yeah. now the reaction would be 10 times right. bigger. Right, right. Because because it's, you know, it's more known. Yes. And so they went the other way. And they're and, like, no, we're not. And this is so. that historically, when I've read about statism, it is this sort of dynamic where. The state tries to encroach, you mm. know, two steps forward, mm. take away X liberties, AB. And then as soon as they meet resistance, they take a step back yeah. and they let that encroachment become normalized. And then they'll take another couple steps forward. So they're always looking for that point of resistance. Yeah. And it sounds like Monica may have provided that point well, and they knew. Monica did the unthinkable. They yeah. didn't think anyone was going to do that because up to up until that point, everyone else had just signed their bail conditions. Yeah, And then she she took the nuclear option. Good called their her. bluff. And I mean, well, it wasn't a bluff. I mean, she, she spent time she in did, prison. She spent yeah. real prison time for it. And and good on her because she completely changed the dynamic. And I think at a very personal level, I personally benefited from her courage. When I yes. was arrested a week or a couple of weeks later, my treatment was reflective of them going, oh, hang on, because of what she did. Yes. Yeah. And, and 22 days in solitary, that's no joke. Um, it's a war crime to do that. You, you can't even do that to enemy spies, etc. Yeah, very difficult for humans to go through that. Um, I would say cultivating a really good meditation practice in <laughs> anticipation of something like that. Because I know if I was ever thrown in solitary, that's what I would do. Try to just meditate the whole time. Yeah. And brutal though, I can't imagine yeah. that. So you sent me a video in preparation for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a speech you gave. It was a closing keynote from the Australian Freedman libertarian conference in Mm. 2023 and i watched some of this video and one of the first things and and if there's anything else you wanted to add to the story before we get into this please feel free to but one of the questions i had about that was early in that video you talk about how we can put limitations on government and this is seen seems to be one of the biggest if not the biggest questions in the history of humanity it's like how do we organize violence or the threat of violence in such a way that we can disinhibit it or Mm. I'm sorry, inhibit Mm. violence among people, right? Have disincentives to violence and coercion among people, but, but it's always a, a, 
ever-present reality. So we have to have, if someone does engage in violence, well, then we need recourse to some authority that can just, mm. justfully will violence against a perpetrator. Mm. So it's like, but then when you vest that much power with one monopoly on violence, i.e. the state who polices the police, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. So your question, how do we limit government? And you, you, you named a number of attempts where we've had the Roman Republic, the Magna Carta, the U.S. Bill of Rights, separation of powers, vote better. Where, how have we progressed on this journey and where are we today in terms of trying to actual, actually limit the power that government has in our lives? Yeah. Well, let's start with the premise. The, the premise that you and I as libertarians certainly agree with, and most people do, just they disagree on where the line should be, is that government needs to be limited. Government should not have all the power to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, with no with no recourse and no consequences. Government should not be that. And if you agree with that statement, then you agree that government power should be limited. So then how do we effectively accomplish that, to your, to your question? Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's lots of historical examples. And in one of the lenses through which you can look at human history, it's not the only thing going on, obviously, but one of the lenses is as a struggle between those who would rule and those who would be free. And those who would rule are always trying to organize some way of ruling over other people. And those who would be free are always trying to organize some way of making sure the rulers can't do that. Yes. And all of these various political mechanisms, legal mechanisms as well, have been attempts to limit government. The problem is that if they're not enforced by a people who mm-hmm. are willing to limit their obedience to the state, then they all fail. We've seen this throughout history. You know, don't even talk to me about the US Bill of Rights right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, the First mm-hmm. Amendment is kind of okay-ishly on it. The Second Amendment is is highly violated, but still there's a there's a portion of it left, but it's been trampled all over. Let's talk about the Fourth Amendment, shall we? How's that doing for you, hmm. you know? I mean, search and seizure, all that sort of stuff, the, 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 the degree to which the US government intrudes into the lives of US citizens and tramples on the Bill of Rights has been normalised to the point that most Americans don't even really realise it's happening, you know? I'll protect the First Amendment. Well, I agree, protect what's left of it. But how about mm-hmm. you try and get back the, the three quarters of it that's already been taken right. off you? Like, yes. that's, that's what the, the founding fathers intended. Yeah. So all of these mechanisms fail. So what works? Well, the mechanisms are still useful, but they have to be backed up by people because the only thing that actually works in the long run is when the people reach the limit of their obedience. That's mm. the only thing that limits the power of government. And it's easier if there's a mechanism, if there's a bill of rights, right. if there's separations of powers, uh, if there's the rule of law. Those are good mechanisms that can yeah. aid the people in, in yeah. redressing grievances. But fundamentally, the people still have to reach the point where they're going to start limiting their obedience. And here's a, here's a sobering fact. If, if there is no point at which you will limit your obedience, then you believe that government power has no limit. Whatever you might say, mm-hmm. your actions say that you believe government power is unlimited. Right. And if you believe it should be limited, then you have to believe that there is a point. We might disagree on what that point is, mm-hmm. but you have to agree that there is a point where you should stop obeying. Yes. And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe in limited government. And this is what Monica did, basically, right? Yeah. She refused to comply, and in not complying, she provided the push that yeah. actually created change yeah. in that system. Yeah. Well, the whole movement did that ultimately. Yeah. So we went from 70 people at that very first protest. And our, we, you know, we, we grew over time. It was a little bit up and down, but over time we were growing and we were getting more sophisticated and more mm-hmm. clever in how we were protesting and the police were getting more and more violent in how they mm-hmm. were responding. We ended up with a situation where we had protests with, with over 10,000 people in them. This is while I was still illegal. And the police responded by beginning to shoot people with rubber bullets. The very first person to get shot with a rubber bullet, his name's Matt Lawson. 
And he was a peacemaker on the front lines. He was one of the protesters, but he would always be standing between the protesters and the police. And if a protester started to get hot headed, mm. he would just go, hey, you know, let's move to the back. Come with me. Let's move mm. to the back. Let's get away. From, you know, mm. And he was always just trying to keep the few hot heads that, that were there amongst the protesters from starting any trouble. And also there mm. were some plants, some police. And we know this for a fact. There were police plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit January 6th. Right, 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 right. There were right, police right. plants among our number to try and incite people, you know, ironically. Of course. Of they course. were the ones inciting actual yeah. violence were, were, were sent yes. there by the police. And um, in the course of him sort of doing that job, he ended up saying to the police, he saw these guns, these, you know, these massive barrels on them because they're for rubber bullets, very large rubberized projectiles. And he said, what's that? And they shot him. Shot him for asking. Well, they, he was, you know, he was, you know, what's that? Yeah. What's that? You're not yeah. going to do that. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. And then they shot him and he ended up, he got hit just below the, the solar plexus. Like yeah. it, it could have killed him. Uh, and rubber bullets, for the record, rubber bullets do kill people. Yes. Like these are not non-lethal yeah. munitions. These are called less lethal for a reason. Right. It hit him in the upper abdomen and he had to have four surgeries to repair the damage to his internal organs, including Jeez. having some organs removed wow. because they the organs were dying at a cellular level. The impact, the blunt force wow. trauma was actually... Yeah, because these are they're guns basically they just fire rubber bullets yeah. instead of metal bullets well yeah they're large diameter to yeah. spread the force a little yes. bit more but there's a bit of weight there so it's like a rubber rubber ball and a rubber ball with a ring yeah. the ring has some mass to it a bit of yeah. a bit of weight to it yeah. uh, and the rubber obviously is designed to sort of cushion it so it doesn't yeah. penetrate and um, yeah the blunt force trauma out of that is is it's pretty severe I can tell you that because I've seen the bruises you know and he had four surgeries and a lot of just mentally getting back on his feet after yeah. having literally been shot wow. by the police that he like me had a very good relationship with up until you know all yeah. this madness happened. and was there any recompense for that nothing no that's that's hollywood you've been you've been watching too many hollywood movies wow. that doesn't nothing. happen in real you life you can't sue you can't you can have all the justice that you can afford how much money have you got to sue when they're going to use every tactic in the book to stall right why was it so bad in australia why is <laughs> is this you know there's, I don't want to say a joke, but, you know, people have talked about Australia being like a prisoner's island, which is, has something to do with its origins. And yeah. I'm not yeah, yeah. completely schooled on it. Yeah. Was Australia being used as a as an ex- microcosm of an experiment for what the West wanted to roll out more broadly? Because it's a, it's a easier geography to control. Like, how do you see that? I, I think that's probably giving the powers that be a bit too much credit. I think it worked out that way. I don't remember who first said it. I can't claim credit for this. It was said by somebody else. They observed that the problem with Australia is not that we're descended from convicts, Mm -hmm. but that we're descended from the jailers. Because when the fleet came over, so we, we were colonized mm-hmm. and the fleets mm-hmm. came over with, with, with convicts, people had mm-hmm. stolen a loaf mm-hmm. of bread or some similar, mm-hmm. you know, horrific crime like mm-hmm. that. But on those same ships were also the guards. Mm-hmm. And the, the prisoners would do their jail time and then they would get out and they'd be granted land and they'd go and work yeah. the land and, and settle it. And the guards would, would see out their service and then be granted a parcel of land and go and do the same thing. And often they were working side by side. Yeah. So we had these two parallel cultures. And sadly for us, it is the jailer culture that mm-hmm. has actually become the dominant one. It's not the sexy one. You don't yeah. see it in Crocodile Dundee and, sure. uh, and the Crocodile Hunter and these sorts right. of people that, have, that people think of as a typical Australian mm. are actually the outliers. Mm. The reason we love them so much is because they're actually a lot better than us on, mm. on the aggregate, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when something like lockdowns comes along and the government says, uh, everyone do as you're told, there is something deep in the Australian psyche that actually likes that. And both from the prisoner side of things, but also the prison guard side of things. Wow. And so we see Australians dobbing on each other. But there's a deeper psychological issue that I think applies worldwide. 
you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. right? It's this triangle. Down the base of the triangle is your survival, oxygen, mm-hmm. water, shelter, food, mm-hmm. these sorts of things. Then your life gets better and you start to care about, you know, do I feel happy? Do I like my job? Mm-hmm. You know, do I like my job is not a question mm-hmm. asked by someone who's hungry. Sure. Right? It's, it's sure. Just, you have to be a certain sure. way up to get to that right. point. And then right up at the very tippy top of the triangle is a thing that Maslow called self-actualization. It's like living your best life. Right. You are waking up every day happy and motivated and feeling fulfilled and in great relationships and feeling appreciated, it's self-actualization. Now, a funny thing happens. Now, most of us in a Western society, we're living somewhere around the middle of, the, of the, the, mm-hmm. the hierarchy. Very few of us are desperate for our survival. Very few of us are feeling self-actualized. Mm-hmm. We're all somewhere yeah. in the middle there. Then lockdowns come along. What happens is fascinating because a very large proportion of people are shoved immediately closer to the bottom than mm. they've probably ever been in their lives. These are the people that run their own businesses or are casually employed uh, or are in some other way devastated by the financial implications mm-hmm. of lockdowns. And all of a sudden, they are worried about their survival, their shelter. You know, I can't keep a roof over my kid's head. Mm -hmm. They're worried about those things to a degree that they perhaps have never been before. But what's interesting Mm. is what happens to the other half, the people that are laptop workers, government Mm. employees, retirees, you know, people that are on fixed incomes, Mm. essential workers, these sorts of things. Not only are they not pushed towards the bottom, but they are invited into an opportunity to get closer to the top than they've ever been before. All they have to do, so think about self-actualization. It's a sense of purpose and Mm -hmm. a sense of belonging and a sense of making a difference that really contributes Mm -hmm. to that. So all you have to do is tune in to Premier Daniel Andrews' one-hour press conferences every morning Mm -hmm. where he tells you, staying apart keeps us together. You, by following these directions, are saving grandma and you're helping us all to fight this once-in-a-lifetime war Staying against apart keeps us oh, together. Yes. I love these Orwellian. inversions. <laughs> like, what was that? Nobody's safe until everybody's safe. Yeah. From each according to their ability to each according to their need. That was a few years ago. But it's yeah. always these bullshit statements yeah. that they premise all of this on. So what happens is these people wake up every morning and it's the ultimate expression of slacktivism. Mm. So you're familiar with slacktivism. People, they'll, they'll click a button on Facebook to say they like or what have mm-hmm. you, but they won't actually do anything. Yeah. Well, now they're given the opportunity to do even less than normal and and be saving the world. Yeah. All they have to do is roll out of bed, turn on the TV, watch the daily press conference yeah. and and pat themselves on the back for how good and how virtuous they are. Wow. They feel like they're a part of something. Yeah. They feel like they've got a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, wow. and a sense of value and a sense of contributing. And this is why when you try and talk to these people about, you know, was this a proportionate mm. response, they don't want to hear it. Sure. Because for them, it's not a technical question. Question. Their identity is it's their identity. And wow. you are calling into question the best years of their life. And they know in their hearts these were the best years they will ever have. They will never again have a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, a sense of validation as deep and as dearly held as what they enjoyed during those years. Okay, so this would be an an actual psychological operation then. Because you are then hijacking the people with that psychological predisposition to act in that way which is the majority by the way does this mean it's hopeless then is the majority of people always going to be that way or is this does this have something to do with our latent cultural programming like why are people why do people exhibit such a tendency to want to comply and feel like they want to pat themselves on the back about it the majority of people will always be this way but that doesn't make it hopeless Because the world is always changed by a minority, a a restless, tireless minority, Mm -hmm. as other people have have expressed in the past. And, And I can prove that because of what happened in Melbourne. 
So we were always a minority. We started out as a tiny, tiny minority, hated, vilified. I can't even begin to tell you the avalanche of hate that I copped after I spoke at that very first anti-lockdown mm-hmm. protest. So that live stream that I did, the one to bully myself into crossing the street and actually mm-hmm. doing it, by the time I got home, I think it was the following day, it had over 100,000 views on it. Mm-hmm. Now, for Australia, that's that's quite a lot of views on, mm-hmm. a, on a live stream. And so that went viral. I, I copped all kinds of hate. And then time passed and the movement grew and the violence grew. By the end, we had over 100,000 people, the biggest political protests in Australian history up to that point in time, 100,000 people physically on the streets with us. During, and, and that's the movement that we built in 18 months. Now, what happened was we, we it reached an inflection point at a place called the Shrine of Remembrance. This is a war memorial that we have in uh, in Melbourne. And a protest was happening and they had the anti-terror squad on the streets of Melbourne, armoured vehicles driving down the streets of Melbourne, men in full body armour. This is in a country with a largely disarmed population, by the way. I mean, what do they need body armour for? They've got body armour and automatic weapons. And we've got all of this on video. It's all there in Battleground Melbourne, the documentary. They are literally jumping off their right riding along on the, on the, the armoured car and then they're mm. jumping off and charging down people, tackling to the ground and beating them with the butts of their rifles. We have that on video. And so as a result, and, and some of those people turned out to be shoppers, people who were legitimately out for their one hour of allowed time outside. And they literally just got assaulted on the street by police officers who, of course, were never held accountable mm-hmm. for that and never mm-hmm. will be. What happened in response to that level of violence was the protest mass that had gathered moved south of the city and ended up at the Shrine of Remembrance. It's a major sort of parkland, etc. And so they took up station there and I was there that day and, and Rukshan, a, a independent journalist, pointed his camera at me and he said, he was live streaming and he would sometimes have 100,000 people just watching his live mm-hmm. stream live. And he said, Topher, tell us what's going on. And I said, well, it's kind of symbolic that we've ended up back here. It wasn't our desire to come back here because we'd been there before as part of a protest and I felt it was disrespectful and a lot of people did and we said, mm-hmm. we're not doing that again. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't up until this point. It wasn't our desire to come back here, but when you've got the armoured car driving through the streets, you know, when, when, when the rights of the people are being violated, the very rights that these – we built this shrine to remember people that gave us these rights mm. – and now really we've been left with no choice but to come back here and to appeal to wow. that heritage and to appeal to them. One thing led to another and that's when the largest police shooting happened and they opened fire with rubber bullets against unarmed people standing on the Shrine of Remembrance en masse. Just a, a lineup of police dark officers. Dark irony. Well, you've got rubber bullets bouncing off the Shrine of Remembrance against wow. unarmed people and they just lined up and they opened fire and they drove everybody off and I, I wasn't one of the people who got shot at. You know, I positioned myself elsewhere and I'd actually already left about a half an hour or so before that happened because I, I could see what was coming and the protesters weren't listening to me. I was urging people to, anyway, that's a, that's mm-hmm. a different part of the story. But the police opened fire and they succeeded in breaking up the protest that day. But then the next day, nurses and school teachers came out in, in their school uniforms and they held a silent protest. And this is in a moment in time when everyone's like, who's going to be crazy enough to go toe-to-toe with with the cops again? They're just opening fire on people now. Mm. They've used everything except live ammunition. And so Mm. I I didn't know what was going to happen next. Mm. I was parked near the city in my car hoping that someone would start something and I would go go there and join them. I was willing to take the risk. I mean, I I was willing to go all the way. If I start Mm. using live ammunition, so be it. Yeah. And so I was there hoping to see something and, and these nurses and these teachers show up in a park and they're just, they, they had written on their uniforms how many years of service they'd done. And this is when vaccine mandates were causing them to lose their jobs. And they stood with masks on, socially distanced in a park and the riot squad shows up and the anti-terror squad shows up and they've got the guns and they're like, we can't shoot these people. You know, it, it's reminiscent of Gandhi and the, and the unarmed campaign for, for the liberation of India from British rule where he made a choice to say, yeah, we're going to keep marching out there unarmed and non-violent because their conscience will eventually, eventually, after they've shot enough of us, their conscience will get them. 
And that's what finally happened was, wow. was they had escalated the violence to the point where the only thing left was to start killing people. And I think in that moment when they saw those nurses and those, those school teachers, they realised they'd gone way too far. And it was about a week after that that they actually leaked to the Herald Sun, a daily newspaper in Melbourne, a letter that they wrote to the Premier and they said it's time to put away the tear gas and they appealed on the Premier, to, they called on the Premier to stop suppressing protests. They finally did after 18 months and shooting people what they should have done right back at the start, wow. which is to say, no, Premier, we're not going to enforce that law. And it took 18 months to do that and we finally shamed them into doing that. Now, back to what we're talking about, that wasn't a majority that brought that change about. Right. That was right. a tireless majority, a, a tireless minority of which I'm proud to say I was only one out of what turned into many, many people. And we were simply willing to go all the way. Amazing story. I, I knew nothing about that. Mm. Oh man, that is so good. You mentioned a largely disarmed society in Australia. And I don't know too much about the history of this other than through a secondhand source that apparently there was a series of mass shootings in Australia a couple of decades ago. Mainly one. There was one big one. One big mm. one. And then there was a push for reforming gun ownership laws. Yeah. And the result is now the population is largely unarmed. To what extent does a generally disarmed populace mm. facilitate conditions like you are describing in these situations? I've asked myself this a lot because I would argue that the time to start shooting back actually never never came. Yeah. I would argue, as, as flagrant as the human rights abuses were, sure. the time to actually start shedding blood did not arrive right. in Australia and we were able to to bring that level of tyranny to an end without the need for that. But even if they even if they weren't used, I guess mm. would it have been more of a deterrent? So that's the question yeah. that I've yeah, I've, yeah, I've been yeah. mulling over and and considering. And you know, in the US obviously we saw some pretty big differences between states. Yeah. Um, and you could argue, oh, you know, that's California, that's because they don't have as many guns, etc. But at the same time compared to Australia, they're pretty heavily armed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we still saw, I mean, I remember seeing relatively early on seeing armored vehicles on the streets of California and they were using paintball guns, mm-hmm. telling people to go back inside people on their porch, on their patio, mm-hmm. you know, on the front of mm-hmm. their property going, oh, there's an armored car driving down my street. I wonder what that's about. Mm-hmm. Actually getting shot with like pepper ball mm-hmm. and, and, and paintball uh, pellets. That's in the context of a comparatively armed population. So it's an interesting one. And I don't know that I can draw a firm conclusion on that. I do think that as a matter of principle, every free society ought to be armed. And if it's not allowed to be armed, you can, it can't call itself a free society. I that's think right. that's quite literally one of the defining yeah. characteristics of a free society. I'm as pro Second Amendment as you could possibly get. You know, I want I want gay married whales to be able to demand land rights for their nukes now, right? I want, <laughs> I want, I want complete, complete freedom. Yeah. So, but... Did it make a practical difference? And, and to what degree does it make a practical difference in restraining that lower level of tyranny before yeah. you get to the point where there's a shooting match? I don't think that's for me to say. Yeah, because in the US, we saw a stark difference between blue states and red states. Yeah. Like at the time, I was doing some traveling. When I would be in California or New York, it was tyranny town, USA. Mm. Like you couldn't do anything, you couldn't, it was just complete nonsense. Texas, Tennessee, Florida, as soon as you get off the plane, pandemic's over. Like, there was no pandemic. You just walked around, no mask, no bullshit. Um, I mean, obviously a little bit of glimmers of stuff here and there, but nothing significant. And I've been trying to understand why that was the case. I mean, obviously there's more of a, a love for freedom in red states than blue states, by and large. Red states are also more armed than blue states. 
Red states are also more, they have a little bit more of God in their culture mm-hmm. than do blue states. Mm-hmm. They're a little less secular, you might yeah. say. And I'm, I'm not, I haven't figured it out either. I don't know why it was so much better in red states, but it certainly was a stark difference. Can I comment on the faith side of things? I, I think there's a really critical thing that's happening here where as a culture, we've tried to kill God. But actually, as a species, I don't think we can really live that way. I think we need something to take that spot. Yes. And when you take away a deity, an all-powerful you know, deity that created the universe, etc., what you see by and large amongst atheists is they'll say that actually, you know, sort of mankind is, is God. But I don't think that's actually how they act. They act as though the government is God. Yes, exactly. And that's the situation that we've ended yes. up in now. And that was really quite striking. One of the features of, of the lockdowns in Victoria and one of the absolute tragedies was how willingly most churches fell into line and complied. That's so right. churches were shut down for months. Yeah. And then they were allowed to, oh, you can do a live stream of a service, but everyone everyone who's doing the live stream has to be masked. Mm-hmm. And oh, you know, you're allowed to take your mask off if you're praying. You know, they're just minutely adjusting mm-hmm. the rules all the time. And again, for that psychological purpose of having you mm-hmm. hang on every word, pastors are having Zoom meetings with their eldership every single Saturday to find out what the rules are going to be for the Sunday so that they can enforce yep. those rules and comply. Right. And from my perspective, and I don't know if you're a man of faith or not, I am. I'm, I'm a Christian. I was raised, I'm the son of a pastor. And uh, I tell you what, my faith has become a lot more real to me through all of this than mm-hmm. what it was before. And if you're a pastor of a church and you hear the news that there is a pandemic coming and lots mm-hmm. of people are going to lose their mortal lives, mm-hmm. forget whether it's true or not, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's the news. That's what you're hearing. Lots of people are about to die. And you, as someone who holds the keys to eternal life, lock your doors and hide away then you don't understand what it means to be a pastor. That's right. You have no business calling yourself a a servant of the living God. What you should be doing is throwing your doors open, moving your sound system onto the steps and preaching, you know, sinners in the hand of of an angry God type sermons. Mm -hmm. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand for at least a proportion of you and this might be your last chance. Mm -hmm. That's what someone who understands the role of a pastor does when they get word that there's a pandemic coming. What we saw, and and what I've said before and I'll say it again, moral cowardice is the great scourge of our time. Yes. And what it does when individuals are cowards, and especially when individuals who claim to serve God are not actually willing to have the courage to do it, we put the government into the place of God. Absolutely. I've heard it said that when you take G-O-D out of the equation, that G-O-V fills the power vacuum. Yeah. And we are religious animals in a way. It's, it's you know, we... we arrange ourselves in these social constructs, whether it's a nation state, a business, even thing, even tools like money, like there's this socially constructed element to our existence. And so in that it almost implies, um, the principle of unity, right? You could think of God as something like that, like the principle of unity. Mm. There's also this thing too, that obviously language is something that distinguishes us from animals. It's our most useful tool or among our most useful tools yet. Language is just a map, right? It's a map to this very complex territory. That mm. So it never fully captures or covers the territory. So you could also, I think, view God as that word for which is beyond words, which mm. gives you this sense of humility and an appreciation that knowledge is limited. And the flip side of that, and this has been said a lot, totalizing knowledge, if you think you have all the answers, your ideas are so good, they need to be imposed that's well. That's where you get the term totalitarianism, right? And yeah. then in the book Paradise Lost, uh, Friedman said, "Evil is the force that believes its knowledge is complete." So there's this very deep connection between like having this arrogant 
hubristic view, totalized world view view of the world that you think your ideas are so good, right? Yeah. That, the pandemic is bad and I got to force people to take these jabs to save grandma yeah, yeah. that that is not consistent with an appreciation for God, right? Yeah. That, that knowledge is finite. There's things that are beyond words. Yeah. There's powers greater than we can conceive of. So two things on that, on, on language, you're, you're absolutely spot on. And I think it's no coincidence that, that in, in the Judeo-Christian understanding, God created the entire universe by simply speaking. And so the yeah. word of God is actually one of the most fundamental building blocks yes. of, of what we call reality today. Fiat lux, let there be light. And and that's why God cannot lie. Because if God were to speak something that contradicted, let's say, the laws of physics, the laws of physics would bend back on themselves in order to be compliant with mm-hmm. the word of God. Because it's the word of God that makes up reality, yeah. not, not these other things. They're an that's, expression of that word. Right. And on, on knowledge, I have a theory that at any given moment in human history, half of what we believe we know will be wrong and that that will always be true. Because mm. if you think about knowledge, it's an expanding circle. And let's say in the middle of the circle are the things that have been the most established for mm-hmm. the longest and mm-hmm. the most empirically testable, etc. And we can be very, very confident. But that knowledge, that circle is always expanding. There's always new things entering into it. Mm-hmm. And the rate at which it's expanding is actually increasing. That's and right. the volume of that circle is, is rapidly right. increasing. But the closer you get to the rim of that circle, the more likely we are to be wrong about something. Yes. And Throughout history, it's not the things that we didn't know that have caused the yes. human race to stumble. It's the yes. things that we thought we knew yes. and were wrong yes. about. Yes. And yes. we see that throughout history time and again. And right. we are not immune to that. And that principle, more than half of what we think we know will be wrong, yes. I think will always be true of the human race. I, the saying, I'd rather have questions without answers than answers that cannot be questioned. Yeah. It's the answers that cannot be questioned that really lead us into dangerous territory. And, and COVID is a perfect illustration. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Amen to that. Okay. I'm, I'm going back to the, the video you sent over and there was a portion of it where you were in defensive assholes. <laughs> it's my favorite bit. Eh? And you mentioned a few names here and, yeah. and I guess to, to define assholes a little bit, you could almost say, as I like the analogy you use with knowledge growing as a circle. Well, well culture civilization grows as a circle as well, largely reflective of that knowledge. But at the edges, we always have experimentation occurring, right? Could be right, could be wrong. Actually, largely wrong, typically. Yeah, Just correct. like in, same with entrepreneurship and business, right? Nine out of 10 startups fail, but one is Amazon, one is yeah. Facebook, something yeah. like that. Those people at the edges are pioneers, right? And so I think we're kind of saying here that assholes are pioneering, not necessarily mean because some names you threw out, Galileo, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr. Ignaz Semmelweis is an important one. I'll talk about him. I don't know who that is, but okay. I would love for you to talk about him. Mm-hmm. So I'll throw it over to you. In defense yeah. of assholes, yeah, yeah. what did you mean by that? So I nearly called it in defense of outliers because you're absolutely correct. Okay. But there is another element that comes into this a little bit deeper into the argumentation that made me sway that way towards the mm-hmm. asshole side of things. So in the first instance, I am talking about outliers. If you think about a bell curve, you know, the, the person who's willing to go first on anything is by definition on the very, very edges of that bell curve. Yes. Doesn't matter what it is, right. the first person that tries a new technology yeah. or stands up and says no. The edge or, of the Overton window. Correct. Uh, and certainly the edge of the bell curve. They're not representative of, of the majority. And human psyche being what it is, the person who's willing to go first now yeah. in this area is yeah. probably the kind of person that has gone first in other areas. And and probably been wrong most of the time. They're that person who's on the edge of, mm-hmm. of lived experience mm-hmm. and is out there experimenting and has probably made a fool of themselves a bunch of times mm-hmm. and is probably someone that people in the middle of the bell curve don't really like hanging out with. Mm-hmm. You don't invite him to the barbecue. Oh, he's going to talk about that Bitcoin again. Oh, that mm-hmm. Robert Breedlove <laughs> guy. Would he just <laughs> shut up, right? It's that kind of, that kind of personality. Mm-hmm 
is then going to be one of the first people to say, I'm going to hit the streets in protest, even though it's been said that it's illegal and I'll probably get arrested. And in that person's life, there's likely to be all kinds of baggage because they've been first on so many other things where yeah. they were wrong, where they were wrong to be first. And so what we have to understand, let me talk about Ignaz Semmelweis because I think he's really, yeah. really illustrative. So the, he was a physician. He was a doctor in Europe. I don't know exactly when, uh, during the 1800s, if my memory serves me, but it might have been earlier. It's it's all in the book, Good People, Break Bad Laws, and also in that speech, which is online. I'll get, I'll get you to put the link into the, the show notes if you would. So Ignaz Semmelweis is a physician and he's working in a hospital where they they, uh, they help mothers to give birth, uh, but they also train trainee physicians. And part of the training is to do autopsies and to cut up human bodies, to mm-hmm. learn how it works and, and have a look at things. What would happen, what was quite normal in Ignaz's day, was that they would go from cutting up dead bodies to helping mothers give birth directly. They would just walk out of one room into another. There was no hand washing. There was no nothing because there was no understanding of germs. There was mm-hmm. no, there right, was no right, theory right, right. for how that could affect that. Right, And the... Fatality rate for birthing mothers in a hospital in Europe at the time was in excess of 20%. And most of that was due to a thing called puerperal fever. And this was considered to be a unstoppable, unfixable post-birth condition that would just sadly afflict mothers and they would die. And the received accepted medical wisdom of the day was there is no point spending time and energy trying to fix this problem because it's an unfixable problem. Even though a mother giving birth in the gutter in front of the hospital had a fatality rate lower than the ones that were inside being looked after. So Ignaz has a good, a good friend who dies, a male surgeon who dies of something that has symptoms very similar to puerperal fever. And he knows that this surgeon accidentally pricked himself with a scalpel whilst demonstrating uh, mm. and, and, and cutting up a cadaver for students. Mm-hmm. And Ignaz goes... He's a man and he hasn't just given birth. Yeah. Those symptoms were uncannily similar to all these mothers that I've watched die right. in my hospital. I've never seen that before, but I wonder if that came from the cadaver. So he, that was his hypothesis. Yeah. To test his hypothesis, he introduced a hand-washing washing solution known as chlorinated lime. It was horrible. It would cause people's skin to peel and all kinds. Like it was mm. nasty, nasty, nasty stuff. Mm. But f- through modern technology, of course, we know it works as, a, as an agent to kill germs, yeah. right? Yeah. And so he enforced this. He was in a position, he, could, he just enforced this right across the hospital. The fatality rate for birthing mothers went from north of 20% to below 1%, basically immediately. Amazing. And then he began to tell... Everyone. Now, initially, the students in his hospital hated it because of the effect that it had on them. But once they saw the result, mm-hmm. they actually supported him. So then he starts publishing his findings and trying to get attention and say, hey, everybody, mm-hmm. we need to do this everywhere. This just has to become the normal thing. And he got a lot of cynicism and a lot of pushback from the medical establishment. You don't know what you're talking about. There's no. You, can you explain to us how this would make a difference? No, I can't. But I know that it does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem was Ignaz was a bit of an asshole. Mm-hmm. His personality type was very combative and argued argumentative and quite Mm. rude, especially by the standards of the day. And so people didn't really like him. And this is so often the the case that the truth comes to us in terrible packaging. Mm. He was an asshole, but he had the truth on his side, but they rejected it because... It wasn't well packaged. Then things get even worse because there was an uprising in Austria at the time and he joined the side of the uprising and it was an ill-fated rebellion. He survived. He wasn't killed, but his reputation was destroyed. And after that, he couldn't get work anywhere. So we went back to his his birth city where he managed to get a, a posting and he re-implemented the same hand-washing techniques and got the same results second time around. Now he's furious because he's looking around Europe saying how many mothers are dying every day that don't need to die. 
right. because you guys are all too arrogant and up yourselves to listen to me. So he starts writing letters, and we've got a lot of these letters still. Mm-hmm. He did not mince his words. He's accusing these people of murder. You are personally responsible. You are going to burn in hell kind of wow. attitude from him because he was an asshole yeah. and he was passionate and he was fired up and he was angry and he was right. Now, he got so combative that they tricked him. They literally decided to get rid of him. They tricked him into going to an insane asylum, believing that they had a patient for him to see. They locked him inside. The guards beat the crap out of him. And ironically, he died eight days later of of an infection from his wounds. My God. And no one was ever held to account. There was no response. No one one, wanted to be his friend, wanted to be associated with the asshole. Now, it was shortly after that that germs were discovered. And suddenly they had a mechanism by which to understand why handwashing worked. And within a year or so of that, handwashing was universal across the whole world. So the truth often comes to us in terrible packaging. Often it's an asshole who's willing to, in Ignaz's case, try and solve a problem that everyone told him was unsolvable, that actually found the solution and was rejected because, well, it was badly packaged, wasn't it? So we need assholes because they're going to they're gonna do things that bring social sanction on themselves, whether that's going first at a protest, whether that's trying to solve an uncurable disease, whether that's standing their ground in the face of the entire medical establishment saying, no, you're wrong. Mm. No, all of you are wrong. Right. That's an asshole move. Yeah. That's a bit of a dick move, but we need those people because they're the ones that actually drive progress and help us to discover new things. So yeah, very much in defense of assholes. We need assholes. That's an excellent, that's so cool. I've never heard that. I knew about that, but I don't know his particular story. And yeah, people that are trait disagreeable, right? They're willing to call it how they see it, regardless Mm -hmm. of the social consensus that currently presides. One thing common among a lot of Bitcoiners, actually, is they tend to be very disagreeable, argumentative people. Yeah. And so I don't think it's any, any surprise that they've arrived at this conclusion. Correct. Oh, clearly this money's better. Yeah, because the mockery of the mainstream media doesn't, bother them. doesn't bother them. Yeah. In fact, some of them feed off it, if we're honest. Yes, um, yes, But exactly. that's a personality trait and a personality type that we as a culture and a society need to san- need, need to not sanction in the sense that we need to, we need to permit, yes. we need to encourage. yes. And it's interesting too, because there is a risk, right? Because you can also be wrong. Correct. And most of the time you will be. And most of the time you will be. So there needs to be this tolerance, I guess, for both. And and this is, there's a mythological thing where the fool is the precursor to the savior. Yeah. Right. So for every, I forgot the name of the gentleman with the hand washing. Ignaz. 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 For every Mm -hmm. one Ignaz, there's probably 19 or 100 failed attempts to fix yeah. that problem or a problem. And for every Ignaz that becomes the Ignaz who turns out was yeah. right, that individual probably has nine or 10 or, or 50 failures exactly. in their own life exactly. previously. One of the problems with these people is they're very easy to mock. Yeah. They're very easy. So when the media wants to get a hold of someone, comes out with something, the yeah. media wants to destroy them. Well, if they're an outlier, yeah. if, they're, if they're the kind of person who's willing to go first on this, I guarantee you there's going to be wreckage course, in their past and in their history. Yeah. It is very easy for the media to get a hold of. Yes. And you get the two minutes hate effect kicks in. Orwell Mm. didn't invent the two minutes hate when he wrote about it in 1984. Mm. He simply observed it. It's Mm. a pre-existing, it already existed then in the media and certainly in the age of social media, it's on steroids Mm. now. And so what they do is they take that outlier who says that outrageous thing that they just can't abide and they, they make them the subject of the two minutes hate which makes it almost impossible for those who are in the middle of the bell curve, mm-hmm. for whom the, the disapproval of others is a very important thing to mm-hmm. them. 
it makes it very hard for them to stand up for that person. That person yeah. often ends up isolated, alone, etc. And I know that from experience because yes. that's obviously what happened to us at the start of our movement. Yes, yes, yes. Push back against lockdowns. But what's needed as a society, if, if you're not capable of being that outlier, being yeah. the asshole, you've got to be willing to defend the asshole. You've got to be willing to yeah. be there for them when they become the object of the two minutes hate. So difficult for most people because, well, it's a pernicious problem because we also can't be experts in every domain. So we often look for social validation yeah. to determine like, oh, well, like, should you get the jab or not get the jab? Well, most people are saying, get it. So maybe yeah. I'll just get it. There's a bandwagon effect, but- mm. It is important to try, I guess, for the most important decisions to try and think critically and have some skepticism that the asshole might be right. There's a way to shortcut that. Find the people who are paying a price for what they're saying. People that have skin in the game. People that have skin in the game. Yeah. So when it came to COVID, uh, all of your chief health officers and the the, the, the hand-picked yeah. medical experts that a politician had selected, which makes yes. them politicized by definition, yeah. they were rewarded by doing whatever and saying whatever the government wanted them to say. Mm. There were other people out there who were losing their jobs, who were experiencing enormous social sanction mm -hmm. and paying a very high price for what they were saying. Now, it's not automatically true that the person paying the high price is right, but I think it is true that the person paying the high price has likely is, is likely to have actually looked far more deeply into this. Mm-hmm. Right, their, their depth of research, the strength of character that it takes to stand up and to pay that kind of a price mm -hmm. is often informed by or is often driven by someone, no, I know this, I've looked at this, yeah. I've researched this, I'm not wrong. And right. then obviously the personality type to go with that, where, they, where they're willing to do that. So before you make a decision, as much as, yes, okay, the, the bandwagon effect can be both negative mm -hmm. and positive, right? right. Fitting into it, there's a certain degree to which we all do need to fit in with yep. each other in order to be able to coexist and, and enjoy relatively conflict-free yep. lives. There is, a, there is a beneficial side to that. But when it comes to important decisions, make sure that you've found the people that are paying a price for disagreeing mm -hmm. and had a good listen to them mm. before you then go with the crowd. Yes, that's right. Crowd well isn't always wrong, but listen to the outliers who are paying a price. Yeah, well said. And it's, you know, you're invoking that metaphor, paying the price, right? It is who stands to lose, right? From standing up to something that could actually be harmful. And then who stands to gain from pushing something that could be harmful, yeah. which is another way of saying like, follow the money, yeah. not money used figuratively here, right? Could be sure. anything, sure, sure, sure. but okay. And then so one last part, this is towards the end of your video, and I guess this is as it pertains to the normalization of wrongdoing itself. You said it sucks to be right early, mm. but that is precisely the time that it matters most. And I guess sort of in line with what we're saying here, it's the pioneers, those assholes, those innovators, those are the ones who tend to take the arrows in the back, right? Or the, yeah. the first one through the door gets shot. You know, yeah. the, the tallest blade of grass is the one that gets cut. Like there's all these analogies for this. So there's a lot of risk inherent to this idea of innovating or speaking truth to power or um, standing up to do what is right, right, right? Uh, I, there's even this term soul in the game, which is one level deeper than skin in the game. Soul in the game is taking downside risk on behalf of others, right? So you might yeah. think of like investigative journalists, certain philosophers, a guy like Gandhi, mm. you know, people that really stick their neck out there for human rights or human freedom, yeah. That's not necessarily in their own individual best interest. Obviously it is in the grand scheme, but they are, they're purposefully becoming that tall blade of grass mm. on behalf of everyone else. Monica, you mentioned earlier, yeah. right? Soul yeah. in the game. 100%. How can we cultivate a culture 
either, I mean, how do we cultivate either within ourselves or within culture at large that places more value on this, this kind of soul in the game behavior? I'd never heard of soul in the game before, but that's beautiful. Because it, you, you, yeah, skin in the game doesn't capture it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's beautiful. And, and Monica certainly, uh, and there, you know, there were a number of, of people in in Melbourne that I would say, yeah, they became the tall blade of grass. Let me let me start with the it sucks to be right early, but that's the only time it matters. And and I would add to that more now that I've had more time to kind of digest it. It's also the greatest thing you'll ever do mm. for yourself. Mm-hmm. So let me paint the picture. I was there from the very first protest. Seventy people showed up. I was there all the way through 18 months of cat and mouse, you know, running away from the police every Saturday. You know, like I said, I've been tear gassed. I've been pepper sprayed in the eyes. Uh, I've been hit with police batons. I've had to get out of the way of police horses as they were moving through uh, to, to break up protests. I had the police visit my house on multiple occasions before they arrested me to threaten me and try and, try, to try and stop me from continuing. I had all of what was going on online, the desperate people coming to me, the abuse, the hate, all of that stuff. And then finally, we got to the point where the police opened fire on the protest at the Shrine of Remembrance that we mm-hmm. talked about before mm-hmm. with rubber bullets. And Victoria Police rubber bullets were bouncing off the Shrine of Remembrance where we remember the veterans that, that fought for our freedoms, the irony. And that's what finally shamed them, like I said earlier. That's what shamed them into actually changing their ways. And they said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to keep violently suppressing protest. And then suddenly our numbers exploded from north of 10,000 to over 100,000 people, mm. maybe well over. It's actually very difficult to calculate, but I'm, I'm saying over 100 as a, as a conservative figure and certainly the biggest protest that my home state has ever seen. Now, what happened was I was able to get permission from my bail uh, uh, parole officer because at that point I'd been arrested and I was mm. on bail. And part of the bail conditions was that I wasn't allowed to attend protests, mm. but that was when they were illegal. And I said, well, are they still illegal if the mm. police are saying they're going to facilitate them now? And he said, yeah, you can go. And the organisers asked me to speak. I'd spoken at most of the protests Mm -hmm. all the way through. They asked me to speak. And because it was a legal protest now, we had a stage and a sound system and all sorts of things that we didn't normally have. Mm And what happened that day was was I brought a crew to do some extra filming for Battleground Melbourne because I was in the in the latter stages of filming for the documentary. And we were driving in and we had to stop the car and get out and walk because there was so much traffic and so many people. And this is this is this is remember, this is after eighteen months of not having enough people. Eighteen months of hoping that there would be enough people that the police would have to take a step back hmm. and leave us alone. And there never were enough. And now I'm having to wade through this crowd of people that you, know, you couldn't even drive within, within a couple of blocks of the Parliament House, which is where we were meeting. And I start to wade through this crowd and people start recognising me and suddenly I'm getting swamped by people who want to shake my hand and hug me. You know, I, I, I had grown men come up to me and hug me and say, I've never told anyone this, but you got me through. So no, we start marching. Oh, no, that feels good. Yeah. We start marching and it's just I'm, I'm, I'm in shock. I'm, my whole body's just numb but buzzing at the same time. My brain can't comprehend what I'm seeing. I keep trying to see the entire protest. I'm trying to get up on anything I can find to stand on to be able to see the front and the back at the same time. And it's not possible. And and it's just too long. There's just too many people. And finally, we sort of marched, I thought, fairly quickly and got to what I thought was nearly the front of the, the parade. We were going to a place called the Flagstaff Gardens. And as we approached, there was a rise that you had to walk over. And I assumed that we were among the first people to arrive. And as I came over the crest, in front of me, there's kind of this natural bowl that's formed there were tens of thousands of people in there and I just I, I I had no words I'm standing there with a film crew unable to talk I had I had nothing it was a literal it was a literal dream come true this was 18 months of that being my dream 
And there it was right in front of me. And then we had a friend back at Parliament House and someone on my team spoke with them. And they said, there's still people leaving Parliament House. So this, this protest march stretched about a mile, a mile and a half through the city with thousands of people, tens of thousands of people all the way through. And then there were already tens of thousands in the gardens and a total, like I said, of well north of 100,000. And then I had the privilege of standing on that stage and giving a speech. I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you. A literal, I mean, you know, you don't get Hollywood moments in life. That's not normal. That doesn't happen. But this was Hollywood. This was straight out of, of, mm. of a Hollywood moment. And my wife was there with me because she hadn't been to most because it's too dangerous. But now she's able to come. So she was there on the stage with me. And I got off from having given my, my talk, which was very well received. And I said, babe, I'm, I'm sorry, but I've got to be honest with you. I think this might be the best day of my life. Uh, and she said, that's all right. I'm pretty sure it's mine too. <laughs> and we just held hands. And you know what's funny? I didn't realize this at the time. Because it literally took me three days to be able to just comprehend what had happened. At that moment, I was right at the very pinnacle of Maslow's hierarchy, right? I, for a day, 100% self-actualized. It was wow. the best day of my life. And I cannot imagine a better day. After all the sacrifices, after everything that I gave and all the risks that I took, not just me, but so many others as well, but you know, for my personal journey to then have that Hollywood wow. moment at the end, I know what it feels like to truly be at the very pinnacle of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, not riding off the back of other people's suffering, wow. not riding off the division that other people got there through, but actually in my own right, because I bloody well earned it. And I want that for other people. But you can't get there if you're not willing to be the guy that goes first and takes that risk. Because that's what earns you a place at the pinnacle of the hierarchy. The greatest thing you've ever done, as you said. Yeah. Now, to the second part of your question, how do we get people to be able to do that, to be willing to do that? So I'm going to answer that question by talking about the people that didn't. Because we know, uh, we, we have on camera various police officers talking about why they were doing what they were doing and other people talking about why they compromised. Mm-hmm. One particularly important video was a, a very brave protester whose identity is unknown who filmed himself talking to one of the riot police, one of the guys in body armour and, and you know, guns and all the rest of it. And the police officer was telling him to get lost. He said, go home. If you don't, we'll arrest you. We don't want to do it, mm-hmm. but we're going to do it. And he talks back. He says, well, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. And the police officer says, well, at this time in my life, I'm not qualified to do anything else and this is how I'm putting food on the table for my mm-hmm. family. And the protesters like, well, what about those of us who can't put food on our table because you're here doing this? And he said, look, I hear you. My wife's out of a job. You know, I feel your pain, but, but I can't do anything else. So what he's saying there is that his conscience is calling on him to do one thing, but his sense of obligation to his family is forcing him or is, is making him choose to betray his own conscience. In effect, Daniel Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, had weaponized this man's family can, against his conscience. Can we insert the fact that governments pay, everything that governments pay for is from stolen proceeds? Yes. Yeah. So like this man, this armed guard policeman, mm-hmm. is paid via taxation or inflation. Yeah. So this... I'm a big believer that when you start to violate the moral fabric, you get these perverse consequences. Yeah. So this guy that now is reckoning with duty versus what he wants to do, well, it wouldn't be possible if the state wasn't stealing from yeah. people in the first place. Oh, 100%. And so that man now has to live for the rest of his life with the knowledge of what he did during that time mm-hmm. and the knowledge that when his test came, he failed it. Now, as I thought about him and I thought about others, there were people that decided they weren't going to have the jab and then they caved because they weren't going to get to keep their job or because they wanted to go to pubs and nightclubs and yeah. parties and cinemas. Couldn't travel. Travel or various things like that. Now, no judgment from me. Your decisions are yours to make. But if your conscience called on you to do one thing and you did something else because of, not because of conscience, but because of practical realities, what that means is that your life is setting you up to compromise. What you need to do is to think through your life 
and think about what are the things that would make you compromise. If you were in that situation, what's the narrative that would be going through your head? It might be your kids. Mm -hmm. It might be the career you've invested so much time and energy into. It might be the comforts of life or the social side of things or your own self-image of of who you think you are. There are lots of different things that would weigh upon you and tempt you to betray your conscience. And I think we have an obligation as people who believe in limited government and therefore believe that there is a time, there is a point where we must disobey. I believe we have an obligation to think through our own lives and to remove the temptations to violate our conscience. So that means thinking mm. about your financial situation. What's, what's my income? If, if that was threatened, would that cause me to fold? If it would, I'd put it to you that you need to improve your circumstances. Mm. Have a side hustle or a side business. Have some investments. What, mm. I'm not here to tell you what that yeah. looks like for you. But get to the point where money and the fear of losing your job is not going to cause you to violate your conscience. Mm. Could it be practical realities? So, you know, issues around where you live, how you live, food. I mean, if, you're, mm. if you live in a high-rise apartment building in the inner-city trendy areas and lockdowns come, I mean, then you're going to be very quickly lining up for government food stamps, right? But if you're if you're living in a different situation, a better situation, maybe some food in the pantry, maybe some land around you, maybe a little bit of self-sufficiency, I'm not suggesting full prepper unless mm. that's what you want to do, but you've got a bit of resilience there, then you're going to be able to obey your conscience with far less struggle than the person who's in a much more vulnerable physical situation. I'm talking about medications. I'm talking about about food and water and power. I'm talking about your kid's education. I'm talking about your income and your ability to live, the community you live amongst. We need to be thinking about the resilience of all of those things so that when your test comes, Mm. you don't end up like that police officer. Mm. You end up like me. This goes back to your contingency planning, right? Like be ready for the test because the test is coming. Test is coming. Like it or not. You better quote unquote study for that test. Yeah, basically. Yeah, and this uh, when you betray your conscience, you can never get that moment back. That's right. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah. You can you can repair your behavior from then on, but you can never get that moment back. And that will do something to you at, at a level of your identity. I mean, I've seen people go to Melbourne now and they say, what happened to Melbourne? It's lost its soul. I say it's a city with PTSD. Yeah. That's what it is. But you can look at people in the eye and the city of Melbourne is now filled with an enormous number of people who are broken. And I can tell you the most joyful, wonderful place to be during lockdowns was at the protests. And the biggest thing people could do for their own mental health during all the madness was to get out of their house and come to a protest. It was amazing. It didn't change their actual circumstances, but it changed their agency and it changed their relationship with themselves because they were no longer living in fear and cowed by government and compromising their conscience. They were now now standing on their conscience and doing what their conscience required them to do. It's transformative. A little bit like the gratitude thing we were talking about before. Actually obeying your conscience in a situation like that, all of those people have something that they will carry with them for the rest of their life and that is the knowledge that they passed the test. And that's what I want everyone to have. That is a beautiful place to bring it to a close, my friend. What an amazing story. Thank you for everything that you have done and continue to do. Thank you for being my first guest here at the new (laughs) new studio. studio. I feel honored. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Where can people find you on the internet and feel free to uh, plug anything else you might have right here as well. Good. Oh, thank you. So the Aussie Wire, uh, theaussiewire.com. You can find all of our past episodes there, but also at the Aussie Wire across all the social media platforms. That's where I'm most active. I produce two episodes of the news every single week, uh, as well as other content. And we've got other people coming on board that are going to have their own shows Mm. soon as well. So definitely follow the Aussie Wire. Me personally is Topher 
Field, at Topher Field, uh, on all the socials. To watch Battleground Melbourne, you can watch it for free. So I, it's online and the promise, I, so I crowdfunded that and some people were very kind and, and threw in the support that I needed for that. And uh, so my promise to them was it will always be available to watch for free online mm-hmm. and it is battlegroundmelbourne.com. Just go and watch it. It's won 14 awards around the world. Uh, so it's not just me saying it's good. It's yep. actually, it's recognized awesome. as a good documentary and it tells a story that you, it will blow your mind. It will honestly, even everything, even after everything we've talked through mm. here, you will still watch that and be like, hell, I had no idea. Uh, and finally, shameless plug for my book, Good People Break Bad Laws. You can order it from goodpeoplebreakbadlaws.com if you're willing to pay shipping from Australia. And if you do, then you can also grab some t-shirts or some other merch and that really helps me out. Or you can order it from Amazon. Uh, that'll be better for you it's not quite as good for me but i still really appreciate the support and that really that book does three things it tells snippets of my story it's not it's not a biography but it tells relevant little bits and pieces out of my own personal experiences it goes back in history and looks at civil disobedience in and in sort of a historical context it talks about ignace semmelweis Mm -hmm. Uh, it talks about claudette colvin who was she was rosa parks before rosa parks was rosa parks Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she actually inspired rosa parks but we've most people have never heard of her and there's a reason for that and Mm -hmm. i talk about all of that but it is also part philosophy Mm -hmm. just talking about all of these ideas talking about this idea of being ready for your mm-hmm. test and how we do that. What is, you know, and how do we prepare ourselves to be willing to be the asshole if that's what it takes? Mm-hmm. And if we're not willing to do that, how do we prepare ourselves to support the asshole mm-hmm. and to be there for <laughs> them when they are the subject of a two minutes hate? I'm biased, of course, but I think it's an incredibly important book because, because if I'm right, that the only thing that limits the power of government is when the people reach the limit of their mm-hmm. obedience then people reading this book and thinking through these issues and preparing themselves to be a part of the group that limit their obedience is quite literally going to change our civilization. Let's hope so. We definitely need a wake-up call. And I'm it's very heartful to see people like yourself popping up in the world, speaking out, taking a stand. So thank you again for doing this. Topher, so good to have you, man. Much appreciated, Robert. And uh, go well. I love the studio. Thank you so much.